welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 8. Say hi to the people, Megan. Hi, everyone. All right. We are going to start talking about a new book today. I had initially thought this might be a couple of episodes, but the further I get into it, it's probably going to be a three or four episode book. So we'll see what happens. But the book is called The Addiction Inoculation, and it is written by an author named Jessica LaHaye. She has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. Shout out to the teachers. And she spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab center for adolescents. So she comes to this topic with a lot of experience. She talks about how she's a teacher and a researcher at heart. And so she just became obsessed with this topic. And she herself has been to treatment for um, alcohol addiction. Just an interesting perspective that she writes from, and there's so much good information in this book. So we are going to get right to it. Uh, in the beginning of the book, she talks a little bit about her experience, what she brings to the table from her life. She gives us a preview of the information in a very concise way that we're going to read about further in the book. So she says... After all my research, interviewing, attending substance abuse and mental health conferences, and teaching hundreds of addicted kids, here's what I've learned about preventing substance abuse in childhood and beyond. And then she goes into name these things that are going to get explained further in the book. But she says, humans have used mind-altering substances for thousands of years to ease our angst. So that's going to come up later in the book. Children's brains are cellularly, cognitively, and functionally different from adult brains. The younger kids are when they start using drugs and alcohol, the more damage they do to those brains. The younger kids are when they start using drugs and alcohol, the more likely they are to develop substance abuse disorders as adults. Adolescents are biologically wired to seek out novelty and risk. Effective substance abuse prevention reduces risk factors while amplifying protective factors. She's going to go over both in the book, and in turn, I'm going to go over both with you. And then she says no demographic is safe from substance use disorder. Genetics matter, but they are not destiny, and prevention works. Chapter 2 is called A Long Strange Trip, and it's kind of her journey of getting further and further interested and committed to this work of preventing addiction in the next generation. So she references a speaker and author named Chris Heron, who has a documentary film called The First Day. And I've seen this documentary film, it's very powerful. Um, had an expert once tell me that it was good for kids ages 10 and up, and I don't know if I agree with that. I think each parent needs to watch it on their own first before they show it to their children. But basically, this guy's whole point, he tells the story of his harrowing addiction and what his life was like the day he hit rock bottom, and it's a doozy. It's called The First Day because his whole thing is, as parents and people supporting others through addiction, we're obsessed with the worst day. We think about that day that you're gonna hit rock bottom and we picture a person who's missing teeth and their skin is all messed up. We picture that worst day, right? But he says if we can focus on the first day instead of the worst day, 
that's actually the best way to help keep the people we're trying to protect from addiction yeah, from that's getting interesting. there. So she goes on to say that there is a study, Candle and Faust, these researchers, that surveyed high school students to discover how substance abuse begins. And in their first paper, they proposed like an initiation sequence of a gateway or stepping stone drugs. Number one is beer or wine. Number two, cigarettes or hard liquor. Number three, marijuana. And number four, other illicit drugs. Of the kids who go on to try marijuana, 98% started with beer or wine. And progression from alcohol to marijuana can be predicted based on the intensity and type of alcohol consumption. Hmm. So I thought well, that was interesting. And then she talks, so there's a lot of history in this section too about drugs in America. She talks about when crack came onto the drug scene in the 1980s and the research that went into that. And Candle, that same researcher, worked with a research partner whose last name is Yamaguchi. And they surveyed 8,000 students in 7th through 12th grade in New York State public and private schools. They concluded that crack did not break the rules of substance use progression. So this course of progression goes on as it always has, even as other illicit drugs are introduced to the scene. So she says the takeaway from all of this is if we can keep kids away from cigarettes, vaping, beer, and marijuana, we are more likely to keep them off the harder stuff. Effective prevention requires us to understand why a kid picks up that first mind-altering chemical, be it nicotine, alcohol, or cannabis, and address that cause head-on. So that kind of goes back to the first day versus the worst day, right? And in Chris Heron's words, if we can understand the beginning, we can help change the ending. All right. Then she talks about the invention of the addict. So for a lot of American history, drunkenness was assumed to be voluntary and that people just drank because they wanted to and all drunkards needed to do was just say no. So she writes, the first physician to call attention to the emerging health dangers associated with excessive alcohol consumption and suggest that the alcoholic was not entirely to blame was Dr. Benjamin Rush. Rush was the first to use the word disease to describe alcohol and its effect in his 1791 article, an inquiry into the effects of spirituous liquors on the human body and their influence upon the happiness of society. <laughs> and debate over the appropriateness of the word disease in reference to substance abuse continues today. So I thought that was just interesting to consider that that's, it's not always been considered like an addiction that we would say, oh, that person is sick. It's, yeah, it's voluntary. It's just like anything yeah. else, right? And then it goes through the DSM 3 and 4 and how it named alcoholism and stuff. So then she goes on to say, language meant to describe the substance user has evolved to disorder-oriented labels such as addict, junkie, and alcoholic are all passing out of favor, while person-oriented language such as person with substance abuse disorder has become the preferred term. So just how we talk about people with other... I was other... say, it's, that's very common yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Just the way we talk about people with other exceptions or things that aren't typical, we always try to put the person first. person first. She concludes this chapter by saying, if we can help our children understand the reasons they may be tempted to drink or do drugs on their first day, they may never end up having to recount the story of their worst day. So that kind of ties it all together. Then this next chapter is called Wired for Risk, a primer on the adolescent brain. If you are an anatomy and physiology enthusiast, I'm looking at you, Laura, Christy, 
I highly recommend reading this chapter of this book. It is a good chapter about the brain, but it's also very complex and goes very deep into things. So I'm going to kind of give you a higher level view of it. And if you care a lot about that, I highly recommend reading chapter three in this book. So she talks about how we're born with not fully developed brains, right? Some uh, mammals come out of the womb ready to walk and we do not, right? Mm -hmm. So we come out of the womb with a less fully developed brain and less capabilities to do those things and we have to develop them outside of the womb. So she starts talking about early childhood, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says between 10 and 25, a person's brain matures rapidly and is more sensitive to the great potential and perilous dangers of the environment. So then she goes on to say, in order to prevent adolescent substance abuse and the harm it can do, we have to start to understand their brains. So that's where we're going to start. So then she goes into neurons and synapses and all of that. So she says before a child's first birthday, the infant brain doubles in size and creates 100,000 new synapses. And then she says for higher order thinking, planning, prioritizing, goal setting, strategizing, or weighing a complex or delayed risk reward ratio, a person needs a frontal and prefrontal cortex. But the trouble is... They don't develop till the mid-20s fully, right? So we have all these people who are kind of wired for risk, but also don't have the fully developed brain part that helps them accurately weigh out the risk and make the best decisions. She mentions when you're raising a teenager or a preteen and you want to ask, like, were, what were you thinking? Like, why, why would you do that? And the answer is... They weren't. Yeah, they weren't thinking, and they don't have the fully developed frontal lobe to make that decision. So neuroscientist Aaron White of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism puts it this way. Adolescence is a developmental period characterized by suboptimal decisions and actions that are associated with an increased incidence of unintentional injuries, violence, substance abuse, unintended pregnancy, and sexually transmitted diseases. (laughs) Suboptimal decisions and actions. I love that. That's so accurate. And then um, Jessica LaHaye says, so scientifically speaking, teens are capable of some truly stupid beep. Right? So accurate. The number of teens we have collectively worked with, the suboptimal decisions and actions. I love that descriptor. Yep. Suboptimal is correct. And then she goes on to say, despite all of this, as the adults with the fully developed frontal lobes, we kind of have to look at some of the dangerous things that they do and the things they do that show little concern for their safety. And remember that it is actually developmentally appropriate, appropriate. which is yeah. really bizarre. Like hard to stomach. Yes. Yes. And hard to tell yourself in the moment when your right. kid has done something absolutely Dumb. Suboptimal. Ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. We need suboptimal shirts. <laughs> Well, this is suboptimal. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Merch coming your way, friends. (laughs) All right. And then she talks about plasticity and neuroplasticity in the brain, synaptogenesis, and myelination. So I'm not going to go into all that right now. So if you want to know that, I highly recommend grabbing this book. And then she talks about how... Until the frontal lobe comes fully online in the late teens or early 20s, the limbic system is large and in charge, and it runs on chemicals called neurotransmitters, and there are a lot of them, but the most popular one is dopamine. They have this underdeveloped frontal lobe, Mm -hmm. and they're using dopamine to propel them through their lives. So when you think about it that way, it really is kind of a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. 
And then she says, dopamine is our chemical reward, our reason, our reason for getting out of bed in the morning. It drives us to hunt down food, sex, exciting experiences, and yes, drugs and alcohol. She says, adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine than young children and adults. And it may seem counterintuitive, but it actually makes sense because low baseline dopamine makes life boring. So the things your kids always love doing and all of a sudden they get into adolescence and they're like, this is boring. Well, mm-hmm. that's why, because they have a lower baseline level of dopamine. And then heightened dopamine response is what makes adolescence exciting and visceral and memorable, which is why you have some really strong memories from that stage because you have that going on too. She says of all the exciting things that can happen in the adolescent years, like a first kiss and all that other stuff, they can't match the dopamine rush of drugs and alcohol because drugs and alcohol hijack the brain's reward system, she says, flooding dopamine receptors and causing levels to rise higher than they could ever go on kisses or roller coasters. Not only are they at risk for drug and alcohol use, but it's the best driver right. of that dopamine yeah. that we're talking about. That's terrifying. Terrifying, but also we have to have information, right? Yep, information absolutely. Is power. So then she goes into talking about how there's many different classes of drugs, and she kind of talks about all of them in here. So we're going to kind of go through very high level what she has to say about that. So she talks about learning. Learning, as any teacher knows, does not happen because of any one thing. It's a complex interplay of attention, cognitive processing, working memory, visio-spatial processing, information retrieval, memory formation, verbal learning, goal-directed behavior, and maturation of executive functioning skills. Each one of these factors is vital and addictive substances disrupt them all. So another reason, especially if you have a kid who's not neurotypical, mm-hmm. they already struggle in some yep. of those areas. So let's do our best to avoid mm-hmm. having this complication on top of that. Then they go to talk about, she goes on to talk about alcohol and rates of alcohol. She says rates of alcohol use during adolescence have been falling or staying the same for the last generation or so. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's mm-hmm. good news, right? She said currently 59% of high school students report having had at least one drink, which they qualified in this study as more than a few sips by the time they graduate, and 24% have done so by eighth grade. However, adolescents consume alcohol differently than adults. When kids drink, they tend to binge drink, and binge drinking is associated with increased rates of smoking, illicit drug use, drunk driving, risky sexual behaviors, auto accidents, physical fighting, few hours of sleep, and lower grades. Currently, binge drinking is defined as four or more drinks in succession for women and five or more drinks in succession for men. Adolescents don't just drink differently than adults, their bodies process it differently. They're more likely to feel the positive sensations associated with drinking and less likely to have the negative one. That causes a mess too, right? They do get the loosened inhibitions and decreased social anxiety, but they don't necessarily get the sedation, the loss of motor control, and the hangover. Mm. which are the things that teach you not, not to, to do, do it. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I thought that was interesting. And then she says as many as 40% of college students report having experienced a blackout and those who black out more frequently do so at significantly lower blood alcohol concentrations than their peers. This is called the tolerance effect. And it's something I talk about quite a bit with my own kids. If kids black out early on in their drinking, especially after drinking less than their peers, it can be a flashing red warning sign that they are at a greater risk of alcohol dependence during their lifetime. I don't tell my kids this to scare them, but to arm them with information. So I love that she said that. We do. We have to talk about it. We, we do. have to be talking about all of it and in detail. Yep. You know, so I loved just 
getting a glimpse of that conversation she has with her children. So this chapter goes on with her descriptions of the different kinds of drugs and mind-altering substances that kids are using and the kind of effects they have on the body. She goes into detail. I'm going to give you a really high-level um, overview of it. So she talks about e-cigarette use and how they initially thought as e-cigarettes came out that it would reduce the number of nicotine users there are in the country. But with the prevalence of e-cigarettes and how popular they've become, they've actually led to a net increase of users. She talks about marijuana and the way it specifically affects kids' abilities to learn and remember things. Because again, we're talking about the developing brain. Um, in her section on opiates, she talks about opiate overdose and the danger of that being that you can overdose on opiates your first time you use them ever, or after years of abuse. So opiates are dangerous in that sense. And then she talks about opiates in combination with sedatives. She goes so far as to say she doesn't believe in fear mongering, but that this is the exception she makes because opiates and sedatives so often cause death and it's incredibly dangerous. Then she closes up this section of the book stating that she couldn't possibly have an exhaustive list of what drugs are prevalent and being used. She points parents to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, drugabuse.gov, or the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids at drugfree.org if you care to know more about the specifics on what drugs are being abused. That's where we're going to pause for today, just with a little intro of her book, who she is, what, what she's learned about drugs and alcohol over the years, and then that primer on the brain and the kind of drugs that kids have used and are using. And when we get together next time, we're going to talk about chapters four and five, which are not my kid, who gets addicted and why, and tipping the scales of addiction, the protective factors that outweigh risk. So, got anything to add, Meg? Uh, this is just a fascinating topic. I think that there's a lot to be learned here. I agree. All right, friends, whatever you're facing in parenting, remember, it won't always be this way. Have a great week.